0: morning. I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles, if you have them, to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. You know, in areas of conduct, the Scripture is very clear that certain things are wrong and certain things are right. Certain things are sin and certain things are not. For example, when it comes to sexual immorality, we don't have to wonder if that's right or wrong. It's wrong comes to lying, we don't have to wonder. It's wrong. comes to covetousness, it's wrong. But there are other areas of conduct where Scripture doesn't give us a cut-and-dried moral answer. The Bible doesn't say, "Thou shalt not." There are certain gray areas. When it comes to conduct. Areas which are determined by the conscience of each individual believers. These are not black and white areas. They are not right and wrong areas. They are right and left areas. Areas that have to do with our personal convictions. And the scripture presents the person who has a lot of hang-ups in these areas as being weak in faith. Weak in conscience. In contrast to that, the person who is strong in faith has a clear understanding of God's grace and sees these things in proper perspective. He sees them as inconsequential. He has a great amount of liberty, a great amount of freedom in these gray areas but you see when you have two christians who have polar opposite positions on these gray areas then you have a situation where you run into problems and division and often disunity in the body of christ and so what's the solution well, Paul gives us a principle in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians that should guide us in our conduct in these gray areas. The Corinthians had written to Paul asking the question Is it all right to eat meat offered to idols? This was a gray area in the church of Corinth. When they went to schnooks to buy their meat, oftentimes the meat had not been slaughtered at a slaughterhouse, it had been slaughtered in the pagan temple as a sacrifice to an idol. And some said, well, we shouldn't eat this meat because if we do, we're contributing to the worship of an idol. Others said, no, it's okay to eat because idols are nothing. And so it means nothing. It's inconsequential. And of course, the strong brother was saying to the weak brother, if your conscience bothers you, that's your problem. Because it's my right to eat and I'm going to take my right because I know that I'm right. You see, when it came down to it, the stronger brother was more committed to me than he was to we. He was more committed to me than he was to us. And so Paul writes to answer this question and says, yes, it is right to eat. You have that liberty. You have that freedom. But here's a principle it needs to guide you. And the principle is this, your liberty must be limited by your love. And how is love best expressed? It's best expressed by self-sacrifice. So my response in these gray areas ought to be, I'm convinced that it's all right. I know that it's my freedom to do it. But if you would be stumbled by my doing it, then out of love, I will sacrifice my right for you. And then having laid out that principle in chapter 8, Paul illustrates the principle in chapter 9. He's going to say, here's a right that I have, that I have limited by love. Now, chapter 9 is one of the most first-person chapters in the Bible. If you look at chapter 9 and verse 1, Paul says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you for you are the seat of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. And he goes on, I, me, my. Now usually when people talk a lot about themselves, they make me sick. Because they're really saying, I'm number one. But in chapter 9, Paul is talking about himself because he's presenting himself as an example of self-sacrifice. And what Paul is really saying is, I'm number three. First is God, and then others, and then me. It's like the acronym for joy. I don't know if you've ever heard this. The acronym for joy is J-O-Y, Jesus, others, you. The way to really experience joy in the Christian life is to keep those priorities. Jesus comes first, others come second, and I'm always third. Now, in verses 1 to 14, Paul gives six reasons why he ought to be financially supported by them. He says, this is my right. And then this morning, we're going to see in verses 15 to 19... How that out of love he surrendered that right. Now I want you to first go back to verse 12 because we skipped over this when we went through this passage. Verse 12 says, if others share the right over you, do we not more? Others use this right of being financially supported by you, and Paul says, don't I have that right? After all, Paul Planted the church in Corinth he established this church these people probably named their kids after him he says others you're you're financially supporting others don't I have this right and then notice what he says nevertheless we did not use this right but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ even though I have this right I don't use it instead he says I endure all things Paul had the right to be supported by them but instead he worked all night making tents so that he could preach all day That's what he endured And not only that but earlier in 1 Corinthians in chapter 4 and verse 11 he says at times I go without food and at times I go without clothing So he's working to support his own ministry so he won't take any money from them. And sometimes he's even suffering lack of food and lack of clothing. Now, why was Paul doing that? Well, he tells us here. It's so he wouldn't hinder the gospel. Now, how would that hinder the gospel? Well, let's assume that you're an unbeliever. And I meet with you and I share the gospel with you and, and you by faith accept Jesus Christ into your life. And uh, let's say you pray a prayer and invite him into your life and you open your eyes and I say to you, well, now that you're a believer, I need to let you know something. The church could use your help. So I'm going to take an offering. Now, is it right? Right? For a believer to support the church? Yes. Is it smart for me to do that at that point in time? No. If you sent me out as a missionary to Bula Bula, and I shared the gospel and people started to believe, and I sat down with them and said, look, I'm kind of short on support, so could you help me with maybe just a house and some food and maybe some spending money? what would happen? The community would start saying, what's with this guy? He's just in it for the money. You see, when we send out a missionary, what do we do? We support that missionary so that financial things don't become a hindrance, don't interfere with the message of the gospel. And I think this is especially true when it comes to virgin territory. It's especially true when a church is being established. And the reason I say that is because Paul did not practice this principle with every church. He practiced this principle of not taking money from the church at Corinth. But on several occasions, he took money from the church at Philippi. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 9, he tells the people in Corinth, he says, I'm not a burden to you, but the church at Macedonia is giving me money to help me minister to you here in Corinth. So he was saying no to Corinth and yes to Macedonia at the same time. So there was a situation where Paul took it from some people but didn't take it from other people. And apparently there was something in and about the church at Corinth and the city of Corinth that he was very careful about receiving money because he knew it would be a hindrance to the gospel. In fact, it's interesting that there's no indication in Scripture that anyone else did what Paul did here, except for Barnabas, who was with him on this occasion. In fact, if you look back at verse 5, notice what it says. Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, that's Peter, Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? So he says, essentially, Barnabas and I are the only two guys that are working to support our ministry. These other guys, the apostles, the brothers of the Lord, Peter, were all receiving financial support for their ministry. And then he says in verse 12, If others share the right over you... Again, others were receiving the same right. So as I look at Scripture... Paul was the only one who practiced this principle, and he only did it in selective churches. I'm not sure why. It may have been because Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. The Jews would have understood this idea of support, going back to the Levites and and the priests. This was a new kind of situation for the Gentiles. So in fresh territory, maybe he was very careful to make sure that people matured before he introduced the idea of the grace of giving. And so Paul says, even though he had the right, he gave it up so that he could be more effective, so that he would not hinder the gospel. And then come to verse 15. But I have used none of these things. What things? The six reasons he gave why he ought to receive financial support. And then he says, and I am not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case. He says, I haven't used these things, and I'm not writing to you as a hint. You know, I'm I'm not writing to try to guilt you into doing it. Paul's not saying, here's six reasons why you ought to support me, but I'm not receiving this from you right now. And, And they say, oh, please take it. And he says, oh, well, okay. That's not what he's doing. He's saying, I haven't done this before, and I'm not bringing up this issue because I want to start receiving financial support from you. You say, well, how important was this principle to Paul? Well, look at verse 15. He says, for it would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. I'd rather die than be accused of being in the ministry for pay. I would rather die than be a Balaam. Paul says, I am not in this for hire. I'm not in it for what 1 Peter 5, 2 calls filthy lucre. I'm not in it for what 2 Peter 2, 3 calls making merchandise of you. And I don't want anyone confusing money matters with the gospel. I would rather die first. Now notice what Paul is saying. He's saying, I'd rather die than give up my boasting. You say, well, Dan, I thought boasting was wrong. Well, it depends on what you're boasting about. You know, Paul said in Galatians 6, 14, God forbid that I should boast except in one thing, and that is the cross of Christ. We boast in the cross of Christ. This word boast is an interesting Greek word. It's used 11 times in the New Testament. Five times it's translated rejoicing. So it's really not the idea of boasting so much as it is rejoicing. In fact, let me show you that. Look at Romans chapter 5. I'll show you this Greek word in use. Romans chapter 5, verse 2. Through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult, there's the word, in hope of the glory of God. Verse 3, and not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. And then verse 11, and not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That word exult means to rejoice. In fact, I was listening to the end of the playoff game last night, and I heard the word used. The, uh, the Jacksonville-Pittsburgh game and Jacksonville intercepted the ball, and they showed the coach on the sideline, and the uh, commentator said, he is exulting. You don't hear that word much. That means he is rejoicing greatly. And so as we come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says, I would rather die than have someone take away this which I rejoice so greatly in. You see, Paul is saying, there is something that I contribute to the gospel. Now, there's there's not much I get to contribute to the gospel. But he says, there is one thing that I get to contribute to the gospel that brings me great joy. I get all excited about it. And if somebody tried to take it away from me, I would rather die than give it up. You say, well, what is it, Paul? Well, look at verse 16. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. Now, Paul says, before I tell you what it is, let me tell you what it's not. It's not preaching the gospel. I have something that I contribute to my ministry, and it's not the fact that I'm a preacher. Why not? Look at the rest of verse 16. For I am under compulsion, for woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Now, was preaching An option for Paul? No. It was his duty. It was his obligation. Paul says, I can't boast in what's expected of me. I can only get in trouble if I don't do it. Preaching is a necessity. Preaching is my duty. I am under compulsion. Woe is me if I don't preach. And then verse 17. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. If I had chosen to be a preacher, if I were doing it willingly, then you could pat me on the back, and I could boast, and I would expect a reward. Now, what do you get rewards for? You've probably all been to sports banquets. You go to these sports banquets, and they, they give out the letters. Now, to get a letter, you just kind of have to show up. I think, I think they're based on you got in the game for so many quarters or halves or whatever, and you get a letter, no matter how you performed. So they give out the letters early in the banquet, and then at the end of the banquet, they give out the rewards the honors. And what are those for? Those are for people who went above and beyond what was expected. Kind of like when you go to graduation and sometimes if you've been to a graduation and you'll see maybe a disabled young person coming across the stage or maybe they can't even get up on the stage. They have to come in front of the stage and, and people know that this person has done more than what was expected of them to get through and graduate and do what people said they couldn't do. And oftentimes when you see that young person go across, they'll get a standing ovation, honoring them for going above and beyond what's expected. That's a reward. Paul says, if I was a preacher voluntarily, then I would expect you to give me a standing ovation. I would expect a reward for what I've done. But look at the rest of verse 17. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. If I became a preacher against my will, apart from any choice that I made, then I have a stewardship entrusted to me. A stewardship is something that belongs to somebody else that they have given me responsibility to look after. And that stewardship that Paul was entrusted with was the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, I've got something to boast about with great joy. I've got something that I've contributed. But it's not that I'm a preacher. Because I had nothing to do with that. Did Paul decide to become a preacher? No. Did he weigh his options and meet with his guidance counselor and kind of talk about, you know, what do I need to do to become a preacher? No. He was a persecutor of Christians. He was chasing them down and he was punishing them. And he was was casting his vote to put them to death, He was trying to capture them and make them blaspheme the name of Jesus Christ. In fact, he was on his way to Damascus. It's, the Bible says he was breathing threats and murder against the, against the disciples of the Lord. Every breath was just a snarl of anger against them. And a light appeared, knocked him to the ground. He said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus that you are persecuting. And Jesus went on to say, I have chosen you to be a minister. I have chosen you to be an instrument of mine to bear my name before Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. Paul didn't become a preacher willingly. He became a preacher against his will. In fact, that's the last thing he wanted to be until God touched his life. So he doesn't get any credit for being a preacher of the gospel. That was a stewardship entrusted to him. In fact, in Galatians 1.15, it says that Paul was set apart from his mother's womb. So Paul says, I don't get any credit for being a preacher. I just get in trouble if I don't preach. It's kind of like Jeremiah. Jeremiah was chosen by God, and the Bible tells us in Jeremiah 1.5 that he also was chosen from his mother's womb womb to be a prophet. That's getting an early start. And the interesting thing about Jeremiah is God said, I'm calling you to be a prophet, but I want to tell you something before you go out and preach. Nobody's going to ever listen to you. It's real encouraging. You're not really going to get any converts. You're going to go out and prophesy and people are going to mock you and make fun of you and they're not going to listen to you. So Jeremiah did what I think every preacher has done, if he's honest, and that is he quit several times. And I love what it says in Jeremiah chapter 20 and verse 7. He says, O oh Lord, you have deceived me, and I was deceived. You have overcome me and prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all day long. Everyone mocks me. For each time I speak, I cry aloud, I proclaim violence and destruction, because of because for me the word of the Lord has resulted in reproach and derision all day long. What's he saying? Woe is me, I have the toughest job in the world. I preach and people laugh at me. And so notice what he says in verse 9. But if I say, I will not remember him or speak anymore in his name, If I decide I'm just going to forget about God and quit preaching, here's what happens. He says, then in my heart, it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I'm weary of holding it in, and I cannot endure it. Every time I try to quit, every time I decide I'm not going to preach anymore, I'm not going to prophesy anymore, it becomes like a burning fire in my bones, and it has to come out. That's good. Listen to Amos. Amos chapter 7 and verse 14. Amos says, I am not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet, for I am a herdsman and a grower of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Amos says, I was just minding my flock one day, and God came to me, a farmer, and told me to go prophesy. So what did he do? He prophesied. And I love what Amos says in Amos 3.8. He says, when a lion roars, who doesn't pay attention? And when God says prophesy, who can help but prophesy? People sometimes say to me, I think it's so great that you've given your life to serve the Lord. And you could have done so many other things, but you chose. I didn't choose this. You know, this is the last place I would be if it was my choice. I can relate to Paul when he says, when it comes to being a preacher, I had nothing to do with this. I just get in trouble if I don't do it. I have no, no, don't pat me on the back for being a preacher. I was called by God, and if I don't do it, I'm in big trouble. That's what Paul is saying to us here. You say, well, if if the thing that he rejoices and boasts in is not being a preacher, what is it? Well, look at verse 18. He says, what then is my reward? What is it that I can boast about? What is it that I get all excited about? Here it is. That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. What is it? He says that I may. I don't have to do this. That I may make the gospel free of charge. God never told Paul to do that. This is something Paul did voluntarily. This is something he chose to do. He had to preach the gospel. He didn't have to preach for nothing. That was his special contribution. And as a result, he says, I have a special rejoicing. He could have said to the church at Corinth, other churches are providing for me, you're going to provide for me too. But he didn't do that. He had that right, but he sacrificed that right. And he says, because I sacrifice that right, it just thrills me. Now, let me ask you something. When you have to give up a right for somebody else, whether it's an unbeliever or a weak brother, when you have to give up a right for somebody else, is that your attitude? It thrills me to get to lay down my right for the sake of someone else or do you say i got to give up my liberty for my weak brother over here i just wish he would grow up and get with it paul says you know what thrills me you know what gets me all excited the fact that i can work all night and day so that i don't have to take any money from the church of corinth And why does that excite him? Because it removes an obstacle to the gospel. And the most important thing to Paul was the gospel of Jesus Christ and seeing other people come to faith. If we want to love the world and see them come to Christ, there may be liberties that we have to put aside. If we're going to love our brothers and sisters in Christ who may be weaker than us and see them grow up, there are some liberties we may have to lay aside. So you don't, you don't say, well, why do all these weak brothers come to our church? Why don't they go somewhere else? No, you, you look at it and say, here's an opportunity to show love. Here's an opportunity to take something I have as a right and make a contribution to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to the kingdom of God by making a sacrifice to help someone else grow. It's an opportunity to think about we and not just me, to think about us and how it affects us as a body. And then look at verse 19. Paul says, for though I am free from all men, I'm free, I have this liberty, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. Even though I'm free, totally free, I have made myself a slave to all men, why? So that I might win more to Christ so that I might see more people come to faith in Jesus Christ. Can I say this? The most effective way to bring others to Jesus Christ is by giving up your rights to serve them. And the most effective way to see others grow in Christ is by giving up your rights in order to serve them. Paul set aside a liberty, And it was his highest joy in ministry, even though he had to work night and day to make it happen, because his sacrifice helped others come to Jesus Christ. So let me ask you a question. What are you contributing? What are you voluntarily giving up for the gospel? so that you can see your friends come to faith in Jesus Christ? And what rights are you sacrificing so that other Christians can grow? You know, I was reading in Matthew 19, and and a passage struck me. And it's a passage where Peter is talking to Jesus, and, and he says to Peter, We have left everything and followed you. What's in it for us? And Jesus essentially said, When the kingdom comes, you're going to sit on a throne. And everybody who has given up houses and family and mothers and sisters and brothers is going to get more. And you're going to get eternal life. And then he said, and the last shall be first and the first shall be last. You know how you can tell if you're saying I'm number one or I'm number three? It's by what you sacrifice. And that passage struck me that reward in a future day is based on what you give up today. What you let go of today is going to have a direct impact on what Jesus gives you as a reward in that future day. You know, we make a lot of fun of Peter, but Peter says here, we have left everything. How many of you can say that? We have left everything. What can you say you've given up? You know, we live in a me first generation. And the most common piece of counsel that I hear today is this. People say, well, in the final analysis, you have to do what makes you happy. Where'd that come from? When did we decide that the bottom line is what makes me happy? You see, that's saying I'm number one, and whatever makes me happy is the most important thing in life. Where's the sacrifice? You know, the idea of sacrifice is foreign to us. How many of us will miss a show looking for the channel changer? And it dawns on us, you know, I could actually walk 12 feet to the TV. And we say, no, nah, I'll watch the rerun, I'll get it on DVD. Sacrifice is foreign. To us. And the idea of obeying God when it's painful is hard to preach. I saw a book the other day. The title was Quit Dating the Church. I didn't read it, but I liked the title. Couldn't make the sacrifice. I thought that's a great message. Because so many of us want to flirt with the Lord. Flirt with the church. But we don't want to make the commitment. Quit dating the church and get committed. You know, I was thinking about the historic flow of the Pentecostal movement. And I'm not saying this to criticize anybody, but it's interesting to observe what happened over the years, because in the 1800s, you supposedly had the second blessing. And the point of the second blessing when they first presented this idea was that you were going to be holy. In fact, it's called the holiness movement. And then it shifted in the early 1900s to where uh, you not only got holiness, but you got the Holy Spirit. And then it shifted later to where you not only got the Holy Spirit, but you got the experience of speaking in tongues and various activities and so forth. And if you notice the evolution of it, there's been a shift from the idea of holiness to the idea of emotional elevation. In fact, now, if you really look closely, you'll see... That holiness is not really an issue anymore. It's that you never get sick and you never get poor and you're always successful. So essentially, you use God for the buzz and for the physical blessings and for the material prosperity. It's all about getting the most out of your deity. And I would suggest to you that that is the American gospel. And that mentality has invaded churches across the board. Effective preaching today is 14 ways to get something out of God. Effective messages today is seven ways you can improve your life. Somebody comes in and says, I'm going to talk about self sacrifice today. Everybody runs. We are a utilitarian people. We want to know what's in it for me. William F. Buckley said the only way we could get away from premarital sex in America is to prove it was fattening. You know, Super Bowl is coming up in a few weeks. When you watch the preliminary stuff to the Super Bowl, they often show little clips of momentous moments in Super Bowl history. They'll show Vince Lombardi being carried off the field after Super Bowl I. They'll show Lynn Swan making some spectacular catch. They'll show Joe Namath with his finger in the air trotting off the field after beating Baltimore. Then in that clip, there's a shot of a hand and the hand is missing a finger. And on another finger, there's a Super Bowl ring. It's the hands of a guy who was arguably the best defensive back who ever lived, named Ronnie Lott from the San Francisco 49ers. He injured and broke and mangled his pinky finger so severely that they had to screw it back together and tape it to another finger. And because it was so crooked and bent over and so painful, they said, well, you can't even touch that. So there's no way that you can play. The only way that your finger is going to heal is if you sit out for the whole playoffs. And then someone jokingly said, and they shouldn't have said this to Ronnie Lott, they said, the only way you'll be able to play is if someone cuts that thing off. And Ronnie Lott said, cut it off. So they cut off his finger, and he played without his finger. You see, for Ronnie Lott, he was willing to give up his finger to play in the Super Bowl. He was willing to give up his finger for the sake of his team. When it came to him, when it was a matter of us or me, Us came first. What would you give your finger for? Who would you sacrifice your finger for? Are you number one or are you number three? I'm going to have the praise team come back. I didn't tell them I was going to bring them back. I love to surprise them. I'm going to have us sing in closing that song, We Are Hungry. We are hungry. How hungry are you for God? Are you hungry enough to make room for Him in your life by moving some things out? Let's make this our prayer, and let's be honest with God today as we sing this to him. We're hungry for him, and whatever it costs, it's worth it, because he's worth it. Let's stand as we sing in closing together.